We're still in the book of 2 Kings. Um, so this evening, we're going to cover one verse in 2 Kings, chapter 25, verse 26. But we're going to cover six chapters in Jeremiah. This is very interesting because the book of Kings just mentions one verse, and it has to do with the remnant. You remember the remnant? We'll talk about this in just a second. But the remnant, they're going to go to Egypt. This takes six chapters in the book of Jeremiah, so it must be covered. Well, let me just begin by reviewing, and then we'll have a word of prayer. You remember that after Jerusalem fell, they took most of the people captive to Babylon, but they left some people there, the poorer ones, the misfits, what have you. But Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah as governor. So that was a, a big deal. Um, at the same time, Jeremiah was released and unchained. He was, he was with the captives. He was, he was ministering to them, and he was going to go to Babylon. Well, you remember the captain of the guard said, no, 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 I'm supposed to um, release you and let you do whatever you want. Finally, he goes to Gedaliah, who's the governor. He's in Mizpah, and so he's there. And then all of a sudden, when the forces, those who went into the hills, um, when they realized they were defeated, the armies and such, and people, they went into the hills. When they found out that Gedaliah was the governor, they all started to return. And you could see a beginning of a very good thing happening, except for Ishmael, one of the guards. He was out to assassinate Gedaliah. And Gedaliah was warned of this by Johanan. And we're going to see Johanan. He's going to be a central figure now. Well, Gedaliah did not take it seriously, and indeed, Ishmael slaughtered Gedaliah. Not just him, but also the Chaldeans, the Babylonians that were there. And later on, 70 men. 80 men came, and he killed 70 of them. 10 he did not because they were going to show him where these reserves of food were. And then Ishmael takes all of those misfits and poor and captives, and he's going to lead them away. He's going to lead them away from the area. They're going to be captives of his, and that's where we stopped. Well, what's about to happen is covered in one verse in 2 Kings, but four chapters, I'm sorry, six chapters in Jeremiah. So as you might imagine, we're going to kind of do a running commentary in a bunch of those chapters, which means we're just going to read it, make a comment or two, and then go on to the next section. But we'll, we'll outline it for you so you know where we're going. Well, before we begin, let's just bow in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is called the anointing in the Scriptures meaning he is the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us. And Father, we're thankful for him, and he is the guarantee of our salvation, Lord. 
but he's also the teacher and the one responsible for our sanctification. And that's what we ask now, Lord. Tonight, we're going to see disobedience upon disobedience, even in the presence of your judgment. We're also going to see religious duplicity and religious foolishness. Would you teach us from it, Lord? And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me just put it together as an outline. I I like to do that. It helps us realize what the big picture is. Well, the first thing that's going to happen is that Johanan is going to pursue Ishmael. For what he has done, going to go try to kill him. Well, he doesn't kill him because Ishmael escapes. But the people are so happy that Johanan rescued him, or rescued them. And they're, they're so excited. The problem is, is that he's not necessarily going to take them back to Judah. He has plans to take them to Egypt. They're a little scared of what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do now that his governor, Gedaliah, was, was killed. So they're wanting to go to Egypt. Now, as they're preparing to go to Egypt, they have a moment of spirituality, and Johanan goes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, what's the Lord's will? Whatever it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we will do it. Well, the Lord gets back to Jeremiah And the will of the Lord is still the same. Don't leave. Do not go to Egypt. Stay where you are at under Nebuchadnezzar and you will be safe and you will be fine. If you go to Egypt, Egypt is about to come under my judgment. And you will be there and you will be judged with them. And they decide to go to Egypt anyway. Now, let's just turn quickly to 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 26. All that I told you that's transpiring in six chapters of Jeremiah, let's cover it in one verse. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So you see, we have to talk about this. And, and last week, we left everyone hanging with Ishmael, taking the remnant. What happened to him? Well, we're going to find out. All right, so if you would first now turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 41. Jer- Jeremiah chapter 41. And we're going to go a little slower and a little bit more in detail in the beginning, but then it's going to get rapid. All right, so Jeremiah chapter 41, verse 11 says, But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done. And so they heard about that. They heard that he killed Gedaliah, even though Johanan warned him. And then they killed the Chaldeans who were there, kind of like the security. And then remember how they tricked those 80 men? Hey, come over here and 
And, and you could talk to Gedaliah, even though Gedaliah is dead. And then their men ambushed them, 70 of the 80. They heard of all of this, and they decide to go after him. Verse 12, so they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So they caught up with him. And, and so at this point, to Johanan's credit, is so far, he was a Zionist. He was for gathering together. He was supportive of Gedaliah. And now he's going to bring retribution against Ishmael. And that would have went well with Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think they would have had to be afraid and go to Egypt. I thought that would have went well. But anyway... So they encounter him at the pool of Gibeon. Um, some archaeologists have said they found this pool. It was a large rock-hewn cistern. Remember we talked about cisterns last week? Large holes that would collect rain and also trenches of water um, because that's, that's how it existed in, in the hot summer time. Uh, this cold, dark place in this cistern would keep the water. Well, I have a couple of pictures, uh, not of the cistern, <laughs> but of the map. So we'll be kind of talking about these places. There's Mizpah. Uh, you can see that's northwest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is destroyed. So Mizpah right now was the headquarters. That's where uh, Gedaliah was. And Ishmael took the people to Gibeon. So that's southwest of Mizpah. And they caught up with them, and there was a pool there. Um, and this, this is where they caught up with them. Now, look what happens. The first thing we see is that the people, when they see Johanan, they rejoice. Because they don't like Ishmael either. They don't like Ishmael that he killed Gedaliah or the Chaldeans or these 80 men. They don't like the fact that they're captives now. These are captives who Nebuchadnezzar didn't want them to be captives with him. And now they're captives of their own. And, and remember, Ishmael was from the line of David. Anyway, we come to verse 13. Now, as soon as all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and the commanders of the forces that were with him, they were glad. I, I don't know if they hoop and hollered, but you can imagine that they, I mean, hey, here comes this guy who is going to deliver us. Well, at this point, there's an insurrection. They're going to follow Johanan, and rightly so. Verse 14, so all the people whom Ishmael had taken captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. So they wisely went back to him. And now you can imagine Ishmael, who didn't really have a whole lot of soldiers left, what's he to do? Well, jo Johanan goes after him, but unfortunately, Ishmael escapes. Look at verse 15. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the sons of Ammon. He went to Ammon. And just on a note, at this point, Ishmael disappears into infamy 
because he was never mentioned further in the book of Jeremiah. We don't read anything else of him. So he goes into if, uh, infamy. Uh, now, Ammon, uh, you could see where Judah is, and of course, Jerusalem was in Judah, and Ammon is northeast of it. You can even see far east of it is where Babylon area is. Of course, Babylon, that, this is all within the Babylonian Empire at this point. Here's a little zoom in of that. Uh, and by the way, we see G Egypt there, and Egypt is going to make a major play in this whole event. But there you could see Ammon, and this is where Ishmael escaped to. So the good news is, is that Johanan rescued the remnant. And we find that in verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, took from Mizpah all the remnant of the people whom he had received from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, that is, the men who were soldiers, the women, the children, the eunuchs, whom he had brought back from Gibeon. So he is now in control, and he's the leader, and he has an opportunity here. He has an opportunity to do what's right before the Lord. But at this point, he's thinking, we need to get out of Dodge. We need to get out because when Nebuchadnezzar finds out, even though we didn't do it, we're going to be in trouble. And so he moves the people... He moves the people to Jareth Chimham, to Jareth Chimham. Now that's south of not only Gibeon, but also Jerusalem. Why, why are they there? Because they're getting ready to make their plans to go to Egypt. Egypt was somewhat of an ally, a weak ally, that both God and Nebuchadnezzar said, don't ally with them. And the Lord had told them not to ally with them, but this is where they're going to go. They think they're going to have some protection. But let's look at verse 17, because it says, And they went and stayed in Jareth Chimham, which is beside Bethlehem, in order to proceed into Egypt. So this is very near where Bethlehem is, and they started uh, to reside there, getting ready to go to Egypt. Now, it's interesting because Jareth means a lodging place. So it's the lodging place of Chimham. And Chimham, he was the son of Barzillai, who was a wealthy Gileadite and faithful partisan of David, during the revolt of Absalom. So this, this place is named after him. And this is where they stayed. Now look at verse 18 as we continue on as they prepare for Egypt. Because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them since Ishmael the son of Nethaniah had struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. So this is why they were going to go. They're trusting 
in Egypt to protect them rather than trust in the Lord because the Lord had already told them, stay there. Now, one writes this, that Johanan was wrong in thinking flight to Egypt was the only solution to the problems of the remnant. Actually, it created other problems, more problems, and certainly it did not place them beyond the reach of Nebuchadnezzar. It didn't put them beyond the reach. I mean, that's, that's where the Lord is sending him next, to Egypt. And one writes, they had reasoned that after the death of Gedaliah, it was better to go to weak allies than to stay with strong enemies. <laughs> well, but again, they're getting ready to go. Their bags are packed. They're ready to go. They have their tickets. All right. But all of a sudden, Johanan decides to seek the Lord, which is a good thing. However, it's going to end up being a bad thing. And we've seen this time and time again in the book of Kings. When kings have done this, have asked the Lord through the prophet, he told them the truth, and then they didn't want to hear it. So we, we saw plenty of that um, in, in, in our studies. Um, look at verses 1 through 4. This is of chapter 42. So we're in... We're starting to hit these chapters now, and, and let's just read these verses. It says, chapter 42, verse 1, Jeremiah, Then all the commanders of the forces, Johanan the son of Korea, Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, both small and great, approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, and I appreciate this, I appreciate their attitude, Please let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God. Let me just stop right there. They got that right. If they want to know the Lord's direction, if they want to hear from the Lord, they go to the prophet. Now, when we want the Lord's direction, where should we go? To the scriptures, the writings of the prophets and the apostles. And it says that pray for us to the Lord your God that is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes now see us, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. And then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I am going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words, and I will tell you the whole message which the Lord will answer you. I will not keep back a word from you. Let me stop there. That is Jeremiah. And I know that he has wept. We know that Jeremiah weeps, but it's weep for the sadness of the, God's people and of the judgment. It was not because he was a crybaby. He was a very, very bold prophet who always said, I will tell you exactly what the Lord said. Even though it almost cost him his life several times, he was in prison several times, and who knows what's going to happen now. Well, in verses 5 and 6, the people even go one step further. They said, whatever he says, we're going to do. 
Verse 5. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send you to us. Let me stop there. Here's this running commentary that I cannot help but mention. So they're saying, okay, if we don't follow what the Lord says, then let this be the witness against us. Let him bring whatever calamity. Are you really sure you want to say that? Verse 6, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord, our God. First it was Jeremiah's God. Now it's their God to whom we are sending you so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord, our God. Everything is mostly, everything, yeah, everything is right with that. I mean, we're going to listen to the Lord, whether, it's, whether it sounds pleasant or not, so that may go well with us. Our trust is going to be in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in allies, but the voice of the Lord through the prophet. Well, 10 days go by and nothing. 10 days go by and nothing. But on the 10th day, the, the voice of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and tells him what his will is for the people. Do not go to Egypt. And you can imagine what they were doing in these 10 days. You can imagine, because of what's going to happen, you can imagine they're getting everything ready. They're going to go. Uh, maybe they're thinking there's no way that the Lord is not going to allow us to go to Egypt. So now we move into verses 7 and 8. And it's interesting here. Now at the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Um, an interesting note here. So sometimes the Lord doesn't reveal his will immediately. What do you do if you want to know the Lord's will? You pray, you search the scriptures, you make sure you're right with the Lord, you make sure your desires for what you think is the will of God is right with the Lord. This is, this is what you do. But you may not find out immediately. But I prayed. Well, here's 10 days. It may even go longer. Why didn't the Lord answer immediately? Was he busy? Was he preoccupied? Was he like these other false gods that take naps? No. It's very interesting that he sometimes tests the people with waiting. Is your faith going to stay in me or are you going to take matters into your own hands? That, therein lies the crux. What, a, what an application for us tonight. We pray, we wait. And then we take matters into our own hands. And then we wonder why we have to try to unravel it all. But here's what is happening. Um, verse 8 says, Then he called for Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, and for all the people, both small and great. And now here's what the Lord is going to say. And it's going to go down to verse 18. Uh, I want to first read verses 9 through 12. And I think you can get the idea right now. And what we're going to see in chapters to come is a reiteration of this. It's going to be the same message 
even though it's not going to be received. It says this, verse 9, And said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I will relent concerning the calamity that I have inflicted on you. I want to read down to 12, but I, I do have a comment. And the comment is this, that the Lord is saying, look, if you stay, I will not bring any more calamity. My calamity is done upon you people. If you stay. John MacArthur writes, it's as if God was saying, I am satisfied with the punishment inflicted if you do not add new offenses. Okay? So it's done. The Jerusalem fell. The people are in captivity, both northern kingdom, southern kingdom. These are the misfits, the remnant that is left, being led by Johanan. And the Lord is saying, you know what? Enough is enough. I have poured out my wrath. You listen to me, and it will go well with you. Verse 11. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. It's God, the omnipotent, versus his instrument, Nebuchadnezzar. But, or verse 12, I will also show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. Can God do that? Can God work through, uh, you know, people like Nebuchadnezzar, you know? Can he work through even the, the vilest of leaders? Yes, he can. He does not always do so. He lets them incur their own punishment, but he can. And when I see God's hand move in people's hearts, especially when they're not believers, to me, that is one of the greatest evidences of God's sovereign hand. Because you're thinking to yourself, this is not going to go well. There is no way that person is going to give in, change direction. You know, I mean, that's not hard to figure out. You know the person, you know how they've acted in the past, and you say, this is, unless it's the hand of the Lord, and lo and behold, you see they change, and you go, Lord, you are sovereign. Well, that's, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. But verse 13 through 17, he says, but if you don't, and could you imagine all of the wrath that God has poured out, all of the times that he's pleaded with Judah, don't do this or the wrath will come. The wrath has come. And he says, look, I'm going to take care of you. But if you don't listen to me, it's like, you know what? My patience has been used up. Don't try me. <laughs> Verse, verses 13, he says, but if you are going to say, we will not stay in this land so as not to listen to the voice of your God. 
saying no. But we will go to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of a trumpet or hunger for bread and we will stay there. Then in that case, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then the sword which you are afraid of will overtake you in the land of Egypt. And the famine about which you are anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt, and so you will die. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt to reside there will die by the, and here you go, here's the trilogy, by the sword, by famine, and pestilence. Those are all connected together, and we see this in the book of Jeremiah as part of God's punishment. It's God's trilogy of punishment. The sword, the famine, and pestilence. And they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I am going to bring on them. So my word, pretty clear. And these people said, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to be fine because we're going to do whatever the Lord says. Verse 18, to cap it off. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, and a reproach. And you will see this place no more. Wow. And, and at this point, he mentions Jerusalem. And he will mention Jerusalem again. He is saying, did you not See what I did. Three times Nebuchadnezzar came and took captives. The third time was the last time and took everything and everyone that he wanted to take, and that was that. Did you not see that? Did you not see Jerusalem burn? Did you not see the walls go down? You know, Jeremiah kept saying it faithfully. Everybody said, oh no, even false prophets stood up and said, he's lying. I'm the true prophet. You will have peace. They now see it. What are they going to do? I mean, here is the warning. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad of this next part because in verses 19 through 22, Johanan is going to be rebuked and admonished by Jeremiah. So look at verses 19 through 22. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go into Egypt. You should clearly understand that today I have testified against you. For you have only deceived yourselves. For it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, tell us, and we will do it. So I have told you today, but you have not obeyed the Lord your God, even in whatever he has sent me to tell you. 
Therefore, you should now clearly understand that you will die by the trilogy, the sword, by famine, by pestilence, in the place where you wish to go to reside. So we haven't even really heard them respond at this point. But he knows that they have decided already because while he the 10 days was going on the Lord was testing them and I believe they're packing I believe they're moving I believe that when Jeremiah came to talk to them they all they had was the clothes on their back and whatever they packed away and they were loaded and ready to go because Jeremiah sees their heart knows that they're not going to obey and he rebukes them now we, we have some other verses here uh, after this, and I, I want to look at chapter 43. We're now into chapter 43, and here's where we're going to see the response, and this is bad. Jeremiah 43.1, but as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had said, sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is, all these words, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God has sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. The Lord didn't say this. The Lord didn't send you. You're lying. Wow, can you believe this? Can you believe this is actually happening? Again, they, they know the history of Jeremiah. They know that he was almost put to death for telling the truth. They know that what happened, they saw in their own eyes. In fact, these brave soldiers ran for fear of their lives because of the Lord's wrath foretold by Jeremiah the prophet, and here he told them again, and they're calling him a liar. Unbelievable duplicity, religious duplicity, unbelievable religious foolishness. Unbelievable. Now, I guess we're going to add insult to injury because guess what? Jeremiah is being forced to go to Egypt. Now, from Jeremiah's point of view, this isn't a problem per se. He knows that they're not supposed to go there, but he was willing to be in chains with these captives, okay, the ones that were taken. He was willing to stay with these remnant. And if the remnant is going to go to Egypt and be under the wrath of the Lord. What was the difference of when he was in Jerusalem telling the king the same thing? That's exactly what is going to happen. But look, if you would, we're going to skip, start to skip now. Look down to verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. Okay, I'll, I'll add verse 5. But Johanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. 
the men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and the grandson of Shaphan, together with Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they entered the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord and went in as far as Toponese. So this is incredible. And you, one would ask, well, did Jeremiah go willingly? Uh, Feinberg, uh, who is a great, has a great commentary on the book of Jeremiah, this is what he wrote. Jeremiah and Baruch were doubtless taken to Egypt against their will. For them to have gone there voluntarily would have violated Jeremiah's prophecies. So they, they believe that they were forced to go there. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they, all the people, went there. Now, we do have a problem here. They went into Egypt. And one of the problems, one of the reasons why God did not want them there, not only because he was bringing judgment, but the question would be, why was he bringing judgment against Egypt? Because Egypt was full of false gods and idols. Drop down to verse 12 and 13. And this is part of the reason why they're going to get it. So you, you say, well, wait a second. They're, they're a country. They're a pagan country. What does it matter if they're worshiping another god? That's sin. It's sin. To worship another god, whether you know it or not, is sin. And of course, upon sin, there must be some kind of action from, from the holiness of God. Verses, um, verses 12 and 13 says, and he's telling them what he's going to do to the land of Egypt, uh, giving it over to death or captivity or the sword. And he says in verse 12, and I shall set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he will burn them and take them captive so he will wrap himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd wraps himself with his garment, and he will depart from there safely. He will also shatter the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he will burn with fire. Now at this point, he's, he's th we're, we're hearing about Nebuchadnezzar, what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. But Nebuchadnezzar is an instrument, known or unknown, he is an instrument of God in bringing judgment against these false gods. So as they're going to Egypt, the question is, how little did they realize that in Egypt, the temptation for them to worship idols, the very sin that had led to the nation's fall, that's it. Remember, we talked about that. There's a lot of sins they committed, but the ones that, that, that are highlighted in the book of Kings is idolatry. Those are the ones that brought the last straw. It, this would even be stronger than before. The issue was clear. The warning was faithfully transmitted, but the remnant were set on having their own way. 
This is incredible. So when we went through Jeremiah, um, it was interesting to, to take a look at some of these things. By the way, here, here we have the path uh, from uh, Garuth Chimham to Tapanese. So this is how they traveled to Tapanese when they went to Egypt. But now as they come into this place in Egypt, it's incredible. Uh, so we were able to figure out where the pyramids were and where the temples were. And here's just some of them. Um, so you can see how many pyramids were there. And of course, the pyramids were part of their false religion. And certainly the temples were part of their false religion. And then down here, um, you could see the temples of Karnak. This is famous uh, historically because it has all of these, uh, all of these temples. And some of them are still standing today. Here is the temple of Amun-Ra, a Karn Karnak. And uh, so we can see that they're still standing. Here's the temple at Luxor. And you can see all of these here, and you can see some of the carvings in there, even some of the hieroglyphics. Here's the temple of Philae, or Philae, uh, still standing. So, you know, hey, maybe we can have a bus trip. If we can't go to Israel, maybe we'll go to Egypt, and we'll, we'll uh, take this historical uh, trip. And then there's these obelisks of um, Heliopolis, and this is in verse 13 when he says, and he will also shatter the obelisks of Heliopolis. Now, you know what obelisks are. They are this long-standing pointed object, which is most certainly used for worship. In fact, in many cases, this was, as far as Egypt goes, uh, the worship of the god Ra, the sun god. Um, then various nations used this, and this was part of their worship, and of course, it was given to other gods. So here's several pictures of it. All right. Looks like the birds like the very top of it. So, you know. Um, and then here, here is some uh, that are even used, and you even see a cross on top of some of them. So somehow or other, this pagan object was somehow incorporated into Christianity and other things. So this is what we have. So again, they're saying to themselves, surely God wants us to go to Egypt. Oh, no, he doesn't. Surely we will be faithful and follow him. Oh, no, you won't. And this destruction that's going to happen to Egypt is not going to happen immediately. And the people are going to be there for a time. And what do they do? They begin to worship these false gods. It just happens over and over again. So just when we thought we had seen it all in Kings, with the fall of Jerusalem, we really have not. And even though 2 Kings just gives one verse to their pilgrimage to Egypt, Jeremiah gives like six chapters to it. Well, if we were 
still doing the book of Jeremiah, I mean a full study, and I don't want to do that. I, I want to conclude with this part on verse 26 tonight. Um, we would see in chapter 44 and 45 the Lord's removal of the remnant. Removal from his place of safety, and we're going to hear their response. And then we're going to see in chapter 46 that there will indeed be judgment against Egypt, just like God said, even though it didn't happen uh, immediately. Um, then Nebuchadnezzar, in, in chapter 46, is coming after Egypt. All right, so let's just kind of work our way through this. And so let's turn to chapter 44. Chapter 44 of Jeremiah. And let's read verses 1 through 6. And here's the argument. And we've already made it. Don't you remember? Don't you remember not what happened to the northern kingdom? Don't you remember what happened to Jerusalem just, you know, weeks ago? It says, The word that came to Jeremiah for all the Jews living in the land of Egypt. So they're there now. Those who were living in Migdal, Tom. Peniz, Memphis, and the land of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You yourselves have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are in ruins, and no one lives in them. Because of their wickedness, which they committed, so as to provoke me to anger. And let me stop there. Provoke me to anger. This is where the unlearned, the atheist says, you see what kind of terrible God he is, but you and I have spent time going through the repetitious, and the Lord told them, and the Lord told them, and the Lord told them. You know, we, we talk about the patience of the Lord. You know, I would imagine, as far as parents go, um, we wouldn't have told our kids that many times before punishment came upon them. But years and years and years, the Lord did this. And so he's saying, don't you remember? And of course, the unbeliever saying, well, he's just a vengeful God. No, he is a merciful God. He just promised them, enough is enough. No more anger. No more anger but you must obey me, as was always what the Lord directed. Okay, so he says, so he says here, um, because of their wickedness, which they committed so as to provoke me to anger, how? By continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they, you, nor your fathers. And here we go. Yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again. Beloved, that is an understatement from the mouth of God. To say, I, I sent them to you again and again is an understatement. If he said to you, I sent them to you again and again and again and again, that would be not hyperbole. 
saying, oh, do not do this abominable thing, which I hate. Don't do this. So that's very interesting here. So it's not as though God is a God up there that came up with these random laws, and he's just waiting for somebody to disobey that random law and pow. These are things that God hates. He loves the Jews. He called the Jews. He chose the Jews. He delivered the Jews. He protected the Jews. But he wanted the Jews to worship him. Reasonable, right? Reasonable. Today's Valentine's Day, right? Okay? And, and certainly, uh, as us husbands have gotten something for our... Or let's say it the other way. As wives have gotten something for the husbands, she would certainly want her husband to reciprocate that love, right? Well... God has chosen this people and has said, I am a jealous God. You are my people. I made you my people. By the way, now as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his people. He feels the same way about us. We are his. We are his. And he is ours. And as we're thinking about this, the Lord says, I hate this. I hate when you're going after false gods. Not only is it a slap in the face to me, the living God, but you're going after nothing. You're going after someone's imagination. You're going after pieces of wood. You're going after carvings in rock. You're going after someone who doesn't exist and you're praying to them that they would help you. How foolish can you be? I hate that, that you're so foolish and you're being what? You're being deceived ultimately by doctrines of demons that we learned in Scripture, 1 Timothy. Doctrines of demons. And this is what they do. They try to get people to believe in what doesn't exist. They try to believe people into falsehoods that are opposed to God's truth. And he hates it. He's not a vengeful God. He's a reasonable God. He's a loving God. He's a compassionate God. He's so loving and compassionate that even though all mankind has sinned against him, He sent his beloved son to die on the cross for our sins. His own son to die on the cross. That's not cosmic child abuse. That is the greatest act of love and compassion. And of course, the unbeliever can't see it. Thank you that he has saved us that we can. So let's move on. Verse 5. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness so as to not burn sacrifice to to other gods. And remember that? Even some of the kings, they moved some of God's utensils out of the way, the worship utensils, and moved in the utensils of other gods into the temple area. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, so they have become a ruin and a desolation as it is to this day. 
That's the argument. The argument is, don't you remember? Didn't you just see it? That, that, you know what? That does defy all reason. I mean, I understand sin, and I understand the sinful nature. I'm so thankful that we're saved, and we also have a new nature to guard us from it. But this is, this is just unbelievable. This is what Peter talked about when a dog returns to its vomit. That's a horrible image, isn't it? It's a horrible sin. It's a horrible, repeated sin. Verses 7 through through 14. We'll go ahead and read those. Now, then, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves so as to cut off, that means death, cut off from you man and woman, child and infant from among Judah, leaving yourselves without remnant. That's why it's death. There's no remnant. Provoking me to anger with the works of your hands, burning sacrifices to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you are entering to reside so that you might be cut off and become a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Would they be a reproach? Well, you remember Nebuzaradan told Jeremiah, I know why this happened to you guys. It happened to you because they did not follow the Lord their God. Verse 9. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness, the wickedness of uh, your wives, the wickedness of their wives, the wickedness of your wives is, is how he explains it, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. If they've forgotten, you know what it means? That no longer is wickedness sin. No longer is immorality immoral. Sound familiar? They've forgotten. They've forgotten that it was sin. They've forgotten that it was a violation against God's law. Is that not the world? Has, does, does the world even think about God? That they're sinning against God? That is the problem with sin. Yes, we're going to receive some kind of punishment and results from sin. But beyond that, it's a sin against God. And if we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be an eternal punishment. Verse 10. But they have not become contrite even to this day. Let me stop. Contrite. There's the idea of humility and repentance. Saying, I was wrong, God. Would you forgive me? I'm not ready to follow. No. They have not become contrite even to this day. All of you. All of your, your lineage, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law or my statutes. Let's talk about that word feared for just a moment. So many times when we go to Proverbs and we see the, the phrase, the fear of the Lord, we do say, okay, doesn't mean to be afraid of God, which is true. Don't be afraid of God. This means to respect God, which is true. But when you do a study of the fear of the Lord... There is a part of that 
that if you're going to sin against God, there should be some fear. There should be some fear of repercussions. And, and it's brought out here. You've not been contrite. You've not, they, they feared nor walked in my laws, which I have set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to set my face against you for woe, even to cut off all Judah. Set my face against you. His, his face was set toward them. May his face shine upon you. You remember that blessing? Well, his face isn't shining anymore. His face is set against them. Verse 12, and I will take away the remnant of Judah who have set their mind on entering the land of Egypt to reside there. And they will all meet their end in the land of Egypt. They will fall by the sword and meet their end by the famine. Okay, there it's not the trilogy, it's just two. Both small and great will die by the sword and famine, and they will become a curse and an object of horror, an imprecation and a reproach. And he says, verse 13, And I will punish those who live in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem. Here we go. Here's the trilogy with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. Verse 14, So there will be no refugees or survivors for the remnant of Judah who have entered the land of Egypt to reside there and then to return to the land of Judah to which they are lodging to return and live for none will return except a few refugees. This is the removal of the remnant. Now, we're going to see the response. The response of the remnant. Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, and here we go. As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. But rather, we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven. That's a, that's a, 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 a god that the Egyptians worry. She's the queen of heaven, um, given different names for different cultures. And pouring out drinks, drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. Talk about doctrines of demons fully hoodwinked by Satan that when they served the other gods, everything was fine. No, when everything was fine, even though they served the other gods, it was because of God's compassion and long-suffering and patience, but he gave them the warning. Verse 18. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. 
and said the women, when we were burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? We refer to this going through the book of Jeremiah that when they did this, um, they would go to worship Yahweh, so to speak, while eating the queen cookies. Okay, let's eat these worshipful queen cookies while we're going to worship the Lord, but not really worshiping the Lord. And then we find out, and then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men, to the women, even to all the people who were giving him such an answer, saying, as for the smoking sacrifices that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your forefathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them and did not all this come into his mind? So the Lord was no longer able to endure it. There you go. That's what we said. We said enough was enough. Much longer suffering than we as parents I mean, generation after generation, but there came a point when he could not endure it anymore. And I believe that's coming again. That's coming again with the Lord's second coming. It is coming as a lion of judgment, even though he came the first time as a lamb of sacrifice. So the Lord was no longer able to endure it because of the evil of your deeds, because of the abominations which you have committed, Thus, your land has become a ruin, an object of horror, and a curse without an inhabitant as it is to this day. Well, we could read it and it would be much of the same. And it's going to continue to go that way. In fact, let's just go ahead and jump ahead to chapter 46. Chapter 46 because chapter 45 is only five verses, but chapter 46, we're going to hear it again. And I think this goes to the compassion. You know, um, God is not just saying it, if you don't listen to me, you know, this is going to come upon you. God is saying it over and over and over again on top of the prophet saying it over and over and over again. I mean, it's at the point where, it becomes a little visceral for us to read this. Uh, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe that he has to say that. But I will be careful because I know that the sinful nature that resided in them resides in us. Praise God that he saved us and gave us the Holy Spirit and gave us a new nature. So the day of vengeance is coming against Egypt. And you're there too bad. And you're becoming part of the punishment. Verse 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet concerning the nations, to Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. 
drop down to verse 6. Let not the swift man flee, nor the mighty man escape. In the north beside the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. And so, in other words, it's, it's not going to help them. They're done. Dropping down to verse 10 and 12. For that day belongs to the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself on his foes. And the sword will devour and be satiated and drink its fill of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for the Lord God of hosts in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. So we, we see this. We, and, and again, I th- it, it's kings that helps us to understand and Jeremiah that helps us to understand that when God says my sword um, will not be satisfied with blood, it's only after generations and generations of telling them of what's going to happen. And someone quotes that there was the Babylonian Chronicle, and it confirmed this picture of hopeless confusion and defeat. The Egyptian army withdrew before the Babylonians, but the Babylonians overtook and defeated them. So not a single man escaped into his own country. So we know that that happened, and it happened some years after. And then finally, Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. This is the message, verse 13, which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal. Proclaim also in Memphis and Topanes. Say, take your stand and get yourself ready for the sword has devoured those around you. And then down in verse 18. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. That is his battle. That is his battle name, the Lord of hosts. Surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor, the mountain, among the mountains, or like Carmel by the sea. He'd be speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. So, we just covered verse 26 of 2 Kings. So, could not let that go. Unbelievable. And so, I see, number one, a religious duplicity. A religious duplicity is when they said they they were going to submit to the Lord, whatever it was, but they really never had an intent to do so. And and it's unbelievable. Somebody writes, back to Egypt was Israel's cry whenever they found themselves in trouble. It was true in the days of Moses and Isaiah, and now in the trying days after the Babylonian conquest. God had told them to stay in the land, but they were afraid to obey. They had already made up their minds to go, but they thought it would be good to ask the prophet to pray for them. Pray for us. We will obey. How pious their words sounded. That is spiritual duplicity. Uh, On the outside, looking religious or looking committed to the Lord, but on the inside, something completely different. I will say this, Johanan had an opportunity. He really did. He had an opportunity to make a mark for God there in Judah. 
but he led the people just like the kings into spiritual duplicity. The other thing is religious foolishness. It doesn't matter if we understand. We're told to trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding. Well, how? Well, I don't understand that. Okay, now we're getting closer. I don't understand that. Well, you understand the first part, trust in the Lord, right? Right. So even if you don't understand how he's going to do it, know that he can. Know that he will carry out his word. But there is a religious foolishness when they've been warned time and time again, but did not give into it. They saw the fulfillment with their own eyes. Probably some of the captives, some of the dead uh, were members of their family. It all touched their lives. I mean, they probably were weeping, but they're making a fatal mistake. That's what it means when Jeremiah said to them, or for you have only deceived yourselves. The NET says you have made a fatal mistake. You have made a foolish, fatal mistake. And then it goes beyond that. Even to say that the truth is a lie. Jeremiah, you're a liar. He didn't lie once. Everything he said came to fruition and fulfillment. He didn't lie once. But that's how it is. Don't confuse me with the truth. My mind is already made up. And then we see flat-out rejection. You see how it progresses? Religious foolishness. As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. And so we see this play out in the world, but we should never see this play out among ourselves as believers. We should never see these things. We should always trust in the Lord and lean not in our own understanding. And I think we understand God in a little better way because we understand the book of First and Second Kings. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us these things. Incredible. And yet the truth of the matter is, Lord, that now that we have a new nature and now that we have the Holy Spirit, we see they were blind spiritually. We're open to spiritual things. And yet we still sin, a sin of choice. Every time we sin, it is a sin of choice. There are no mistakes in regard to the sinful nature. So, Father, we know that we battle, but would you help us, Lord? Would you help us not be um, double-minded? Let us be totally wise and dedicated to you to obey your word, to know your word, to know you, and to be faithful. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.